Noli, how are you, man? Absolute pleasure to have you on here for a chat. And one of my fondest memories of, of Leo Noli is the first time I've met you. We were down at a dance in Clamel, and I was, a, I was a very, very wet week sober. I wasn't long sober at all, and we were at this dance, and I was sporting a, a tracksuit and a pair of Air Max at this ballroom dance, and you were up dancing, you came over to me, you're coming up for the dance. And I said, man, I'm not, I'm sober, I can't dance, you know. I'm not having getting up there and everyone looking at me. And uh, you said, man, there's no one going to be looking at you. You're not that important. And I remember finally getting up, man, as stiff as anything, and then slowly being able to just let go. And I tell you, man, it was one of the greatest experiences. My first time sober bopping, sober dancing. It was some experience. Yeah, that was, that was some crack. I mean, the thing, Philosopher Kant calls music the quickening art. And the thing about stuff like that is when you're in a group full of sober people in particular, most of them, not all of them, but most of them are so self-obsessed with themselves. That thought process of, oh, people think of me and, jeez, I can't do that or I can't do this or I can't do that, that they're not even looking at you. They're, they're so... And, and once someone... Once I tapped into that, I realised that, you know, what I was chasing for a long time um, through booze can actually be obtained through music like when you sit and put in your head headphones and you go for a walk and you listen to the likes of you know Suzanne or something like that like music is a beautiful beautiful thing so the dancing look it's, it was a bit of crack I mean the two of us were in our early 20s it wouldn't have been the ideal situation that I would have wanted to place myself in but I want to talk about a little bit about that today it's like what's your alternative What's your alternative to a life of recovery? If you're, if you're in a position where you need to stop drinking, then the chips are, chips are down. The chips are really, really down. And, and like, look, I'll, I'll, go, I'll rewind. I, um, I grew up in, in North Westmead in a little parish that's not even on the map. Right? That's how rural and secluded it is. And... Um, I want to talk about, you see, I want, I want to talk about my family without offending my family because they might hear this, they might not hear this, but then I have to be honest too. My perception of how I grew up was a very uncomfortable upbringing. Um, and it, that may not have been the case for other people in that house, but for me it was really, really difficult. Um, it was, like, there was violence, there was drinking, um, there's another thing that's really important to say is we were always warm and we were always fed. That's really important to say. We might have been always clean because when you grow up in the country, you tend to roll around in muck and play in <laughs> sand and climb trees and fall out of trees. And, uh, you know, we, we had a thing when we were younger. It was like uh, we'd ring around the house phones and it'd be like, um, who's going up the fields today? Like, you know, we just... We'd say, we'd organise, like, you know, in military terms, a grid reference or a meet-up point or a, a rendezvous point, an RV. And uh, you'd ring around the house phone, you'd, I'd ring down the, down the road and, I, you know, there's five or six houses within a two-mile radius and we'd all ring around each other and we'd organise to meet. Then we'd just walk around the field, like chasing cows or dropping big stones into cow shit and watching the plow. So it was a, it, that is lost, you know. I don't think kids do that anymore. Maybe they do. My kids don't. You know, if I, I'd be telling them stories about this and they just laugh at me. <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, you went up the field, you know. Um, but the environment in which I grew up in was not, um, you know, I had a conscious 
that I don't want to be a victim here because a victim always has to be right and a victim is always has to live in blame and I'm not blaming anyone. I, I just really struggled as a child. Mm. Really, really struggled. Uh, and I can tell by your nod of approval that you're with me on this one. Like, I was just always thinking about my thinking. Mm. Scared, terrified, you know. And then, of course, in the middle of that, in the 90s as well, the Catholic Church would have had a huge influence on our thought process. Like, um, I remember the first day of school, like, meeting the priest and he said something about hell or something. And I was terrified, like, straight away. But, uh, like, there's 30 other kids in that class. And I could ask any one of those people today, I'm friends with some of them still, None of them remembers that. But for some reason, I just heard hell and seen a man in black. And yeah. it was like, I'm going to burn forever. And it was just hyper fear all the time. And, um, do you know, like, my dad was a drinker. It's not up to me to qualify him as an alcoholic. But he, he um, there was, a, you know, I'm not even going to get into that. Because, again, it'll drag me into blame. It'll drag me into playing the victim. Alcoholism is a genetic disease. And unfortunately for me, right, I don't know if you were to say him, but if you were to grab my family tree and shake it, there are two types of people that will fall out. <laughs> Sorry, three types of people. <laughs> Alcoholics, soldiers, and alcoholic soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> And that's it. And they'll fall out and they'll flap all over the place. You know what I mean? And it's like, great. So this is where I'm coming from. I'm not saying, like, it's a genetic disease. It's a mental obsession, a physical allergy that will compel me to drink against my will. So at the age of 10, and, uh, you know, uh, like, here's, here's one thing. Although there was a lot of drinking in my house uh, when I was a child and a lot of fear and uh, a lot of... What's the right term? Um... Lack of effective communication, right? So, like, if my dad went on the beer, these are the memories I have. Now, I'm not quite sure that these are even, you know, exactly how it happened, but this is how I remember it. This is what sticks in my core, is he'd go off on these, like, three-day benders, and my mother would just, like, go silent, you know? And we'd never have an explanation to where he was. And then we'd catch wind. She'd be on the phone and she'd be talking to someone. And then like at two or three o'clock in the morning, it was dark anyway, I don't know, we'd be in bed. Like this team of people would bust in the door, like usually my um, my aunties or neighbours or friends of my mother. And they'd wrap us up in blankets and put us into a car and bring us to a location like my auntie's house. And we'd be left there for two or three days and we'd miss school and then we'd be brought to school from there and then friends would be saying, oh, can I come over to your house the weekend? We'd be like, uh, no, the, you know, the, there's work being done or my dad's away at work and, you know, my mother's not able for all the kids. And we'd be making up all these excuses and lies. And that's the earliest memory I have of shame. Like, yeah. I, I, I really felt this internal shame uh, of the situation that I was in. And I remember one time in the 90s as well when there was not this obsession to have everybody in the workforce um, and it, it was, it was the, my mother didn't, she had odd jobs or she worked in bars or whatever, but she ran, she ran a tight ship, she ran a good house, she ran a solid house given the circumstances. I remember one time she got this job um, in, a, in a big fancy house in Mullingar up near the golf course, you know, and uh, we went to pick her up and 
we're in the car or whatever. And I remember pulling in and she was sweeping leaves in the yard. And I remember feeling this like terrible shame that my mother was sweeping leaves for some doctor or solicitor. And I remember thinking to myself, this, this isn't right. Like, So there's all this conflict. Like, And I don't know where this comes from. I don't know where this shame comes from. I can't pinpoint a, a situation in my, in my life where I'd say, right, right there, I started to feel shame. I remember when my dad started playing golf when we were younger. Um, I, used to, I developed this like shame around the golf club. Oh, no, no, we can't be here. We're not good enough to be here. And, you know, kind of, like, it, it's just, it's strange. And I'd love to have, like, I'd love for you to open up a book and go, right, it's here, it's on page 12, yeah. this is why you are this way. Yeah. But it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist, yeah. you see. And when you try and mentally masturbate yourself to figure that out, you just keep yourself in blame and keep yourself in the sickness. So yeah. it's really much, very much about action. But I'm trying to lead up to, I suppose, um, the night I had my first drink. Now, I'm, I've painted a picture of the type of kid I was, full of shame and guilt and remorse and fear and anger and worry and, and, and all these kind of mixed emotions, you know. And um, I, I used to always want to be around adults when I was younger as well. Um, they used to call me an old soul. I was reading a thing the other day on a recovery meme page. Stop calling children old souls when you mean future alcohol. I've seen that, yeah. <laughs> oh. Do you know, and they used to, like, just drinking my chamomile tea. Yeah, very like, fancy we, here. Yeah. We, we've <laughs> made it. We've yeah, made it. We're drinking, <laughs> we're drinking herbal tea. Um, but... I remember being in the public and, and despite all of that stuff, I was obsessed with the pub scene. Mm. I loved the pub scene, right? I don't know what it was like in Dublin, right? But in rural Ireland, my heroes were in the pub. Yeah, you made it. Yeah. You, the dad used, when dad used to take us to the pub, um, it, was about, it was 20p for a game of pool, right? But me and the brother, who's, I don't know if he's the alcoholic, but he, he, he definitely... Looks like me, smells like me, and acts like me when he drinks. Um, so I, I don't, I don't define anyone as an alcoholic, but uh, it's up for up to himself. Uh, we we used to love the public, and we discovered this way that if you put push in the twenty p and you got a fifty the old fifty p, you know the one with the points mm-hmm. on it, you could jam that in where the pool table was and keep the pool table open and play pool for free all day because yes. it would leave the balls open. So you could see how we were developing these, you know, cutting corners type characters. And I had this obsession with sports as well. I wanted to be a sports commentator when I was younger. Like I was obsessed with Mihalo Merhartik and Mihalo Hare and all these guys. And I wanted to be a sports commentator when I was younger. Um, now, I don't know if that dream will ever materialise, but that was the first thing I remember I wanted to be. I wanted to be in Crow Park on All-Ireland Sunday, commentating on the All-Ireland. That was my first dream, you know. And... Um, it's, I, I was, at the age of, that was around 1998, and I could recite the All-Ireland Football and Hurling winners, you know, like Jimmy McGee, from the year I was born up to the present day. And all these old-timers in the pub used to lose it, and they'd be giving me a pound, and they'd be saying to me, 1995, and I'd be saying, Dublin won the football, Westmead won the minor. And they'd say, 1996, I'd be saying, Wexford won the football. And I'd be like, you know, the boys would be like, look at this kid, he's rhyming off all Ireland's, and... They'd say 1990, Dublin won the football, or Cork won the football, Cork won the hurling, the only modern day double. And I'd have all these stats about the game, you know, memorised. And um, 
they just loved that. And I loved the whole hype of it. I loved the scene of it. But I didn't realise at 10 years of age that if I took a step back and looked, there was nothing only misery at that bar. Misery, deprived wives, blameless children, blameless wives, empty homes, wages being drank. Because that's all that's in the pub scene. Like mm-hmm. People who are sitting in the pub at 12 o'clock on a Saturday... That's somebody is a home in their house, a mother or a wife or somebody not spending time with them or not taking the £60 that they were sending in, spending in the pub and going to the zoo for the day or going for a drive to Killarney or whatever. So I was obsessed with the whole pub scene. And around the age of, of 10, somebody gave me my first drink. I, I know the man who gave it to me, actually. He was, um, I don't know if I should have mentioned his name, but he, he was from Tala. Red-haired fella. If he ever hears this podcast, he'll know exactly who I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, we, won a, we won an under-14 championship. I was on the panel. I was only 10 years of age. But we, we, um, he played for us illegally. So he was a member of St. Mark's GA Club here in Tala. But his grandparents, his grandfather's his grandmother's house was in our parish. And he played centre-half forward. He was an exceptional hurler. Like, he was 13 at the time. He was lethal, you know. And... Uh, I hope maybe someday he does stumble across this podcast. Um, but he handed me a, a nagging of putching or a bottle of putching, I'm not too sure, uh, that he had swiped from all the adults because everybody was back in our house drinking. That time, like, you know, the house could be packed. So he swiped it and he was out the back and he was there swigging over and he was like, you know, Nolly, take this, take this. And I took, like, a mouthful of it. And to this day, like, it's, you know, Valentine's Day... 2023 that was 1998 and I can tell you exactly how that felt hitting my tongue going down my throat going into my belly going into my veins and right to my toes and it lifted me to a place that I have never been able to get back to since I have chased that multiple times every session I ever went on in my life I was chasing that feeling of that first thing and identify so much of that exactly you get it because we're cut from the same cloth. And it's not about amounts or carnage that we cause, talk about. It's, it's, this is what we want to talk about here. People say to me still, even today, um, you know, 13 years and change without a drink, people say to me, ah, you weren't that bad. You know, but where were these people at four o'clock in the morning when the rats were climbing the walls in the room when I was on my own? The, like uh, people say, you're not, oh, aren't you so lucky you got so young? What are you talking about? The cheese had slipped off the cracker at 21 years of age. My body was in depletion. I don't understand that statement. People need to stop saying that to young people. Weren't you lucky you got so young? Because it's not about drama. It's not about consequences. It's not about external stuff. This is an inside job. It's a Mm. total inside job. So when I say to a new person or a person in recovery that's young... Oh, God, Art, you're so lucky you got it so young. What I'm really saying is I'm a better alcoholic than you. I've drank more than you. And maybe that not, might not be the sentiment in what you're saying, but deep down, that's really where it's coming from. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. an air of contentment to young people. And it doesn't help. Yeah. It's not helpful. I don't know if you can identify with yeah. that. No, I can't. Do you know, when you really think about it, like it's, it's, it's like there's a line you'd often hear people say, oh, they stopped in time. 
Yeah. What do you mean to stop? Just you took the took the express bus to the rock bottom, like you know what I mean. You just hit the rock bottom <laughs> a lot quicker than than the other people did. Yeah. Like, and the worst type of alcoholic is a functional alcoholic because you'll gradually just you know you be able to go to work and pay your mortgage and whatever, and then you'll never enjoy it enough that you enjoy it, and it'll never get bad enough that it stands out that's on the radar that you should do something about it. So you're just living in this subtle misery, and then eventually the wheels come off and like right, I better do something about it. And you were a lot like me when I drank; it was chaos. There was no subtleness. Was, I stood out in the room. I was the lad that was in a blackout in pre-drinks, like you mm. know, before he even went out to the pub. Exactly. It was just because me- it was like that. We're trying to recapture. You talk about that moment, that bliss in Nirvana. When I, and I remember that as a kid, taking my first drink and the fear melted away. The fear that I was carrying since I was a kid, that I didn't know where it came from. But when I took that drink, wow! And woke up the next day, I want to go back to that place. I want to go back to that place. And never, nearly, but never quite. Yeah. It was nearly there, but and it was always in the next. Drink. The fingers on it a few times. Yeah, yeah. Robin Williams, our dear friend who passed away, um, said that you know a functioning alcoholic is like a paraplegic lap dancer. You can do it, but just not as well as the rest of them. <laughs> 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 you know, and it's uh, it, like so. I, I, and you, t- like I, no ten-year-old in rural Ireland is going to get to drink alcoholically from the get-go. Mm. No matter, I don't care how screwed up your house is. Right, and there may be someone in this podcast that could could say, "No, actually, I was allowed to drink alcohol, and that's fine. I'm not here to challenge you. I'm just saying, in rural Ireland, for me, no matter how dysfunctional my home was or how how much struggle my parents had, I wasn't going to get to drink alcoholically at ninety uh, in 1998 at ten years of age. But what I did develop from that first drink was the obsession." that's uh, often described in a lot of 12-step recovery programs. Um, one of the greatest kept secrets to recovery from uh, alcoholism and addiction, if you want to use that word, is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That thing is, the first 164 pages of that thing is phenomenal. The information that's contained in that, the ideas that's contained in that book, um, and we see people spend millions on treatment, millions annually on treatment. And yet this thing is, it used to be a fiver. I think it's like 12 quid now or something, or 11 quid because of inflation or whatever. But that tool, like... Why is it so effective? Because it spends half of the portion of, the, of, of those 164 pages explaining the idea of powerlessness and obsession of the mind and allergy of the body and the disease concept of alcoholism. It illustrates constantly, and all great writers will do this. When the carpenter wanted to tell a story to fishermen, he used a story. He he used fish. Mm. He used fish when he wanted to talk to carpenters. He talked about timber and building things and stuff like that. Mm. And the author of the big book, William G. Wilson, constantly does that. He wants to reach out to the drunk, and he constantly uses an analogies and stories that all point in the same direction, yeah. but they're different. But the wording is different, but but the sentiment is the same. Yeah. There's a story in there about your man drinking. Um, he drinks the milk, the ounce of whiskey in 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 a glass of milk, because it couldn't hurt him on a full stomach. Yeah. And then he ends up drinking eight glasses of milk with eight ounces of whiskey. Yeah, and trying to circumvent the uh, I yeah. won't I won't get drunk here if we put whiskey in the milk. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah. So I developed this obsession, right. And what that looked like was I couldn't concentrate on anything. Sports went out the window. School working went out the window. 
The only thing I really used to get excited about was history. I, 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 lo- I still love history today. That's why I fell in love with the, st- uh, with, with the stories in, in, in that book that I'm talking about. Because it's just that one big, beautiful, historical story. Um, but, so what the obsession would look like, Carl, would be that I would see booze everywhere at 10 years of age. Like six lorries could pass me and I'd notice the one that says Heineken or Bulmers. Mm. There could be 10 TV commercials in between the cartoons, in between the Simpsons, then TV or whatever was on. I'd notice the one for Guinness. When I'm watching sports, I can see nothing but the booze ads. And I remember saying this to my mother. I was like, you know, Mommy, I think I'm, I've seen a lot of drink everywhere. Oh, that's just because your father drinks. And she just pawned it off, like, you know. Mm. Um, now, eventually, my dad did stop drinking for a period of time. He still has a few beers now at the moment. That's his own journey. I'm not going to assassinate his character or drag drag his name through this podcast. That's not, not, but he still has a few beers today. But he gave up the drink around that time. And um, I remember there was a big bag of cheap lager that my mother had got somewhere up in the shed, hidden, you know, as we do, try and protect the alcoholic from drinking. Um, There's another beautiful line in that book that we keep referring to that says, you could send an alcoholic to the Greenland ice cap and even an Eskimo will show up with a bottle of scotch and <laughs> yeah. ruin everything. Yeah, yeah. So these these larger cans were hidden about seven different bags, you know, wrapped up yeah. and wrapped up. Me and the brother found them and I remember opening one of them and I was, the foam was coming out of the top and I was shaking with excitement. like. And I took a slug of this and it tasted awful, but the effect was immediate. And then over the course of three or four days, we drank all of the booze. And then panic set in. So then the, the booze was noticed then about two weeks after. So the booze is missing. Where's the booze? So me and the brother went into uh, radio silence. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And we, had a, we, we said we'd go for a walk. We said we need to come up with a plan here. And I remember I looked at him, and it was immediate. It, like it, there was no like thought process here. It was immediate. I knew how we were going to get out of it. I said, we'll tell the mother. We dragged the bottles and cans up to the place that we drank them in, and we emptied them out because we didn't want Daddy going back drinking. So we used his situation to cover <laughs> ourselves, and she believed us, and we dodged a bullet. And I learned a valuable lesson that, in that moment. Lie and you'll be fine. Yeah, it's easier to lie than tell the truth. And that became a guiding principle for me as a teenager. Now, I'll fast forward a bit because there's a lot of those stories, you know. There's a lot of those, like, um, silly little antidotes, stories. Of, I went to secondary school then in the village that my mother grew up in and um, I was a headbanger. I was an absolute headbanger. Um, I couldn't sit still in the class. And that was funny for about a month. And then the people who wanted to learn couldn't learn because I was setting off fireworks in the classroom or I was throwing stuff around or I was being aggressive or I was jumping up on tables or and fighting in the classroom. And it was really... and You know, the early noughties, late 90s, early noughties was a strange time. Like, it was easier, I suppose, to navigate probably than it is for kids nowadays. Like, I don't know how my kids deal with it. 
for us, like, you know, kids are much more loose today. They talk about stuff that we didn't talk about. You know, they've TikTok, they've this, they've that, they've the other. And I'm trying to navigate that as a, as a father because my guiding principle as a dad is to never forget what it's like to be a, a child. That's the number one guiding principle for me. But then when I was a child, it was easier. I mean, I remember in school, so we were talk- laughing about this the other day. Somebody wore a Gap hoodie. Do you remember the Gap hoodies, yeah, right? Yeah. Somebody walked in, right, with this Gap hoodie on, and then um, everybody got to, I think they were in Heatons, and they were like f- a fiver, and they were really cool. And whoever decided to make up this rumour waited till everybody had a Navy Gap hoodie. Like, we were allowed to wear them in school. They were really fleece-lined or warm. There was about 50... Navy Gap hoodies, usually around first and second year because we were younger and we were cold and whatever. And one of the sixth years or fifth years just turned around and goes, do you know what that stands for? What? Gap. It's gay and proud. And that was it. The stocks of Gap fell and nobody could wear (laughs) the Gap hoodies. Like nobody could, because you could have been anything but gay and proud in the the late 90s, you know. So that was like the height of the trouble we had to navigate. Now kids, like overstimulation, there's, Take doctors making videos and you know in the, in, the, in in the rhythm that we're in you know we know a couple of people that might have a blue tick beside their name right you just know you know you know through through whatever circles right and there's one or two people that you know I follow or they follow me and we chat on time and they have the blue tick and my daughter like is like oh, you know someone who's verified and I'm just looking at her going what does that mean. These are human beings, you know. I don't, I don't, so it's, it's difficult, I'd say, for kids nowadays. What I'm trying to say is, like, it was a little bit more straight-lined when we were growing up. You know, it was, it was down the middle, even though it was chaotic, you know what I mean? And you, you said it before, like, when we were growing up, kids were fighting and scuffling. I'm not saying that doesn't happen now, but now they're just making TikToks, most mm. of them. Do you know, uh, that's, a, well, that's, I suppose, a positive thing that they're not milling each other over, but... um. I left school at 14. I was suspended 18 times in a year and a half. And I was basically told, listen, go or you're gone. And I remember going to this place in Scotland called Coatbridge, right? And it's full of Irish and it's um, it's like the Battery Heights of Glasgow. You know, it's on the outskirts of Glasgow. And um, I didn't last long there. So I, mean, I came home. Like I was, I was going, I was going, I was going. I couldn't, I couldn't be controlled. No matter where I went, my head came with me. Yeah. The booze came with me. The problems came yeah. with me. And I came back then, I was 14 years of age, and I was out of school, and I started, you know, working, odd jobs. Now, it was during the Celtic Tiger, right? And anyone that's listened to this podcast will remember what that was like. It was like the Wolf of Wall Street, except for we were in construction, so, you know, high vis yeah. and hard hats. You could walk off a and site. Chicken baguettes. Chicken baguettes. <laughs> the breakfast roll, the chicken yeah. fillet roll, yeah. Um, the birth of the deli counter. Yeah, you got a sensor deli counter. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Sausage rolls. I remember like having loads of money and like I would be vibrating on a Friday afternoon. 12 o'clock I'd start to shake. And I couldn't wait to get these six pack of Linden Village into me. That was my poison. Every Friday, I deserve it, you know. And um, a couple of things started to happen around me then. I was a blackout drinker like you as well. I remember the first night I ever drank in a, in a pub. It was in Bartley's Lounge in Drum Cree. I was 15 years of age, and I drank a couple of cans of cider, and I blacked out. 
And for anyone that doesn't know what a blackout is, it's like sleepwalking with activities. <laughs> right? That's what Robin Williams calls it. Sleepwalking <laughs> with activities. I was, like, you lose portions of your life. Gone. So I woke up the next morning and I remember sitting in the pub drinking cans and that was it. And I thought I had a great night. I made a spectacle myself. I was singing when I can't sing. Trying to take my clothes off and no one wanted me to take my clothes off. Jumped in a taxi then with everybody and paid for the taxi like, you know, like your man from Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, I get it. Throwing money at, you know, the great fella. Uh, but in the morning when I woke, the first thing that came into my head was, I need more drink. Yeah. I, I, need, I need to, I need to, you know, all I have to do is just drink this a few cans every day and I'll be fine. So booze is my solution. We talked earlier when we were making the tea. Um, there's an Irish expression called Bosnaholicta, which basically means the death of beauty. And that's my alcoholism summed up in one. That's my... Drinking, summed up in one. The death of beauty. One time it was a beautiful thing. The next thing, it turned really nasty. Mm. So look, as a teenager, a couple of things started happening. And I'm sure you shared the same experiences, although we were in different, geographically different places in Ireland. People started to jump in rivers and hang themselves and shoot themselves or get on planes. That started to happen around me. So, like, I had friends that commit, that died by suicide, as we say now. They died by suicide or they emigrated. So, I'm friends with a lot of people, friends of mine that are in Australia, right? And I look at the life they have and I, I see, you know, and then I see it's been like 12 years since I've seen that person or 15 mm-hmm. years since I've seen that person. So, they had to emigrate or they, there was, you know, suicide everywhere. Boom, boom, boom. People dropping like dominoes. And all the while I was sitting in the local pub in the village that I grew up in, obsessed with, you know, just being able to drink normal. Like, just like, all I want to do is drink and not have consequences. Because yeah. um, every time I drank, there was drama. Every time. Every single time. Do you know, I, I wanted, I made it to deal with myself to be as honest as possible. And I want to mention something that maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should, I don't know. But I moved to kind of use this platform to speak the truth, be honest, right? Mm-hmm. I remember going out with my brother one night. Um, I was 17, he was 18, and we were in a private party or a function in uh, Mullingar. And um, it was towards the end of the night, I was drinking Smittix. I don't forget, I stayed on Smittix all day. And I, was, I had about 10 or 12 points of me, whatever, I can't really remember, but... I remember talking to two individuals. Your man's since passed away, and his someone else was standing beside him. We we're talking about Liverpool and the Champions League because you remember 05 Liverpool won yeah. the Champions League three 0 down at half time. Yeah, we so were talking yeah. about this, and the next thing I felt his hand grab me by the throat. It was an individual that lived close to me, but was a lot older than me. And I turned and looked at him, and I just said, "Look," I said, "Will you let go of me?" Like, so he kept squeezing me throat. And I was like, I said, this fella's not going to let go of me. So I drew out and hit him a couple of thumps. Right? Now, I fully remember this night. I remember it like it happened yesterday. And anyway, I turned around and I did what every good alcoholic does. I picked up my pint and started drinking. As far as I was concerned, I had dealt with the issue. I was grabbed. I swung out. I saw blood being drawn out of the individual. He'd left. That was grand. 
My brother then does what every good brother does. He sticks up for me. He goes out, he says to your man, what's the story? And what was relayed to me afterwards by someone who was there standing next to my brother was that the guy started to mouth back at my brother and made a kind of go for him. And my brother just stuck out his fist and hit him in the chin. But the dude, the individual, the man, and it's a tragedy and it's an awful thing. And I, I pray for his family every day. I pray that they find forgiveness in their heart because it was a freak accident. The guy fell, banged his head and passed away a couple of days later. Now, this guy's mother was best friends with my granny. As the crow flies, this man lived a half a mile from us where we grew up. This guy was in around the same age as my dad. Never did we intend to go out for that to happen. That was a freak accident. That was a self-defence freak accident. My brother ended up spending time in prison for manslaughter for something that he did not intentionally do. Uh, something that was drink-related. And it hurts my heart every day. Every single day I carry that man's memory. And I still see it today, like in the locality where I grew up and I go, and there's still people who hold on to it because they don't have the tools to deal with situations from an emotionally mature perspective. So they still look at me as this 17-year-old kid who did what he did. Or my, my brother is this 18-year-old kid who this happened to, you know. They're not able to have the adult conversation. Up to the point of two years ago, I was in a pub, not too far from it, and I was sitting next to a fellow who used to babysit me. And he started drinking, and as he got the fourth pint into him, he turned and asked me about it. And in his mind, for 15-odd years, he had heard that me and my brother had dragged that man out of a taxi and, and beat him to death. That was the story that he had heard. And I was able to look at him straight in the face and said, that's not what happened. This is what happened. So that's a real wow story. That's an impact story there. That's, a, that's, that's like the talk was loose and we were having fun and then bang. Now a normal person would be able to stop, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he be able to stop? He'd say, this is a pretty serious situation. I think I should evaluate my relationship with booze. But the nature of the alco alcoholism is that you're not able to do that. You cannot bring to the consciousness of your mind the pain, suffering and humiliation of a week or even a month ago. Yeah. In 1998, I was on the roof of my granddad's hay shed. And I slipped off and fell and broke three ribs off a cattle feeder. You know, them circle things where the mm. cows stick their head in. That's 20 odd years ago. I can still rem remember the pain and suffering and humiliation and agony of lying on that ground and everybody laughing at me because I fell off the roof of the hay shed. When I go into my grandfather's yard today, as an adult, I look at that hay shed and go, stay away, that thing will hurt you. But where booze is concerned, I can't do that. It doesn't happen. It doesn't matter what happens to me, I'm not able to stop and look at the consequences. This is why I'm trying to paint the picture. It's an internal job. It's a total, total internal job. Circumstances... The most tragic thing that could ever happen in, in, in your core circle happened to me where somebody passed away and it still didn't stop me. Crazy. Like when I say that out loud, it's absolutely crazy. Yeah. And let me paint the picture for you, right? So around that time, I was running out of road. That makes sense to you. Yeah. Like I was, do you know what I mean? I was going nowhere in a hurry. Do you know what I mean? And I was, you know, I could see 
only one way out of this. I remember drinking in a in a in a bar in Delvin, uh, down the it was the Blue Hackle Inn it was called, and um, I was only about seventeen and. There was an old timer there who kind of wouldn't know my grandfather. My grandfather's sober since nineteen eighty. He's um, he's he's a long time in the program and he's a solid egg. And his father fought in the First World War. He fought in the Battle of the Somme, first Battalion Irish Guards. And uh, someone said to me, "You know what your problem is, kid? He says, you know why you keep? You know why you, why, do you know why you're always either going to trouble or coming from it? You have no discipline." He said, if you had any kind of guile in you at all, he says, you'd join the army like your grandfather and your great-grandfather. He says, they were men, he says. And I says, for some reason, I just believed him, you know. I said, maybe there's something in this. And this is the way, like, I'll paint a picture and then I'll move on, right? So, around the age of 16, 17, 18, I used to wake up on this Monday morning dying. I mean, absolutely dying. There wasn't words in the English dictionary to describe the horror, the pain, humiliation, suffering, and not a penny in your pocket. And I'd set about this quest never to drink again. So I'm done. Mm. That's it. I'm finished. And I would be led to believe that I had some form of power in that decision-making process. Be like, I'm, I'm in control here. I, I'm going to stop. And I'd set about this quest never to drink again. And the first thing that would happen, right... Wouldn't be that I'd be drinking chamomile tea. You know, <laughs> two big lads of tattoos here drinking the, yeah. the herbal tea. <laughs> that's a different life. Um, I would, I would be nasty to the people closest to me because I knew they'd love me no matter what I'd done or said. Mm-hmm. So much internal discomfort that I would take it out in the people closest to me. Yeah, people on the street. Then I was a saint, my mm. boss and the people I worked for, and I worked for some great people down through the roads down through the years some very very patient people yeah. very patient people um, one man in particular gave me a great had a great job uh, doing fruit and veg he picked me up at four in the morning and I finished at ten or eleven during the day it was an alcoholic's paradise sure sometimes I wouldn't even be going to bed I was just getting on the lorry doing my day's work earning my crust going on the beer and I didn't work on Tuesdays as well it was Tuesday, yeah. Tuesdays I didn't work on, and at a half day Thursday, so it was a, it was a dream. Yeah, good solid man, um, a s- strong business in that locality I was in. But um, back to this quest never to drink again, you know, as if I had some kind of involvement, and just, I see it. Just back to that, what you were saying there about the, the fronts we put on. Is, is that like a trait of an alcoholic that we're the you know the the, the chatty happy go lucky guy in the pub in front of the lads in front of all the strangers. Then we go home, you, you get the bad and the ugly. You know, we're like the performer in the pub, and then at home we're just hollow. We're not present. We're just ghosts. Like, well, see, I I know that if I'm living with you, right, and we have an agreement whereby we're under the same roof, you're not gonna throw me out. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like my mother, in fairness to her, she never gave up on us when she should have. Like, I left my own mother medicate for my illness. Try and explain that one. Mm-hmm. i uh, been dragged to a psychiatrist trying to explain the unexplainable. Yeah. Like, screaming when I wasn't in the house and screaming when I was in the house. She never gave up on us. Never. And she should have. She would have kicked me out of my ear when I was 15 years of age. Because if the shoe was on the other foot, I wouldn't have the tolerance. Like, she just, she loved us unconditionally. 
And I suppose that's that's something important to, to say as well. But for me, it's like, I'm going to treat you like dirt because I know that you love me no matter what I do or say. But the people in the street, I cannot have you dislike me. I need to be liked. And it's all this... I have a tattoo here on my arm. I'm a very special worm. And that's some conversation starter. But it's from a, a book from a boy called Ernie Kurtz. And he says in the book, the alcoholic drinks not because he believes he is a worm. And he drinks not because he believes he is special. He drinks because he nurse, nurtures the idea that I am a very special worm. So I'm lowered and low. <laughs> but I'm a special type of low. That's like the, the, the big ego and the low self-esteem. Big ego, low self-esteem. Yeah, very important piece of shit. Yeah, VIP, very important piss head, very important piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, all this gutter bravado and this, this... I could be a stage character in the pub. That's why I love the pub so much. It's a yeah. performance. Absolute performance. Uh, and it was the same when we were out in fields as kids, like. It's yeah. a performance. Um, but in the house, you can't perform. Do you know what I mean? In the house. So back, back to this idea, right, that um, we're lowering the blinds here because the sunlight of the spirit is coming in on top of this, <laughs> which normally isn't a bad thing yeah. for a person in recovery. No, but, he's uh, getting a suntan sitting here. Um, <laughs> like so, so, so this idea, this quest never to drink again, then the obsession of the mind would start. And maybe if you just drink Smittix and don't drink Budweiser. Maybe if you just drink bottles and don't drink Guinness. Maybe if you just drink whiskey and don't drink gin. Maybe if you just drink gin and don't drink... See, my drink was Guinness. I loved and adored, but it had to be a nice pint. Uh, bottles of Heineken, I, I, I was obsessed with. But And I'm yet to meet someone else who drank this drink. I only know one other person who ever drank it in their life. That was my father. It was a shot of Jamaican black rum, blackcurrant, and a cube of ice. One cube of ice. That was my drink. That was my poison. Um, and I, I, and this stuff would take the paint off a gate like it was lethal. So I'd start this wash machine around Thursday, around day three of this quest never to drink again. And eventually then the obsession would win out. And sometimes it'd be subtle. Sometimes it'd be just, oh, I can't take it anymore. I'm going drinking. Sometimes I'd say to myself, do you know what? Just... We'll we go in and we'll drink six pints of Guinness and we'll go home. And I'd have all these defence mechanisms set up about, you know, not going on a bender. So I'd only bring 50 euros, because you can't go mad on 50 euros, can yeah. you? I'd leave the key of the car at home. I'd leave my phone at home so I couldn't ring this fella or that one or this one or that one or end up in a house party. And I'd walk in with this idea that I was going to sit up at the bar and drink six pints of Guinness and go home. And if you hook me up to a lie detector test... And ask me, is that what you're going to do? I pass it. Because mm. I genuinely believed. And that's the obsession of the mind. This idea that's so strong that crowds out all other logic when it comes to booze. Yeah. And if you are an alcoholic of the hopeless variety, you will identify with this. If you're not, you won't. And there's another key caveat to that. It's at certain times. So at certain times you don't. But at certain, more often than not, you do. So it's funny. So I'd walk into this bar, Luke Kelly would be playing, when I'm drinking, I'm always thinking. The, 
the coal fire would be hopping, the pool table would be waiting, and there'd be a line of old timers. And it appeared like quite poetically because it'd be like they get older as they go down the bar, you know, yeah. or hunched over. And there'd be a couple of boys at the bar, and they look like the decisions that they've made in life have had severe consequences on their face. Yeah. That's what they look like. And the smell of the place. And I'd start to sweat and shake. I loved it. And I'd order a pint of Guinness. And the process for the pint of Guinness settling, 90 seconds, usually, two minutes at max, because it has to ser- settle to a certain type of blackness and then you top it up. I couldn't wait. I'd be looking at this pint settling and I'd be panicking. And I'd say to your man, give me a whiskey or give me a rum or give me something. And I'd drink it. And as soon as the obsession would win out and I'd take that drink, then we have this thing called an allergy. Now, whether that exists in the mind or the body or whatever, I don't care where it exists. I don't care if it exists in my left glute. Honestly, I don't care if it's in my big toe. The fact is that I have this allergy to alcohol. I react differently. The word allergy is defined as an abnormal reaction. Now, every time I drink, I react abnormally. So I get it. I have an allergy. And it sparks this thing called a phenomenon of craving, a craving that cannot be explained. That once I take a drink, I crave more booze. You crave oxygen, but you don't know you crave oxygen until I put my hand over your mouth. Mm. Then you know you crave oxygen. So when I put booze into my system, I start to crave it. Four days later, I'm in a pub and cabin in the same underpants and no one talking to me. And I owe three or four hundred quid. And I'm thinking to myself, how did I? I probably have a black eye as well. How did I get there? It's not the tenth drink. It wasn't the fourth day of drinking. It was that first drink. It was actually ordering the Guinness that done it. So giving into the obsession and then ordering the, the, the short, whatever it was, whiskey or rum, whatever it was. Drinking that, the obsession wins out, the allergy is sparked, the phenomenon of craving takes over, and I'm gone. A fella said to me years ago, he says, kid, he says, it's like having sex with a gorilla. Get into the cage, close the gate, he said, it's not over till the gorilla says it's over. And it's the very same with booze. It's not over till booze says it's over. So that was my life as a teenager. And did you know from a young age you had a problem with drink? Oh, from the first time I drank, I, I said, this is it, right? And I had a problem when I, and I, when I had freedom of movement and I could drink whenever I wanted. I knew, I said, like, I can't stay sober. And I can't, so there's two, t- two key, key questions, right? And it's, can you stay away from booze for long periods of time on your own strength unaided? That means without buddies that don't drink, without some kind of outlet, without some kind of 12-step recovery program, without some kind of system in place, can you stay off booze for any long periods of time? My answer is very simple to that. I want to hear yours. Mine is no. Yeah. I can't. I can't do any more than a week or two. Yeah. And I'm back drinking. Some people can do years because of an overpowering desire to do so. Yeah. But I can't. I can't do more than three weeks without a drink. Yeah. And I'm gone again. Um, and then the other question is, have you any control over the amount you drink once you start drinking? Yeah. No, and that, that was me, man. Like, I was, a, I was a binge drinker. I wasn't a chronic alcoholic. You know, I didn't drink every day of the week, you know. But when I did drink, I couldn't stop. 
Exactly. If I had one drink, that obsession would start. And I remember even before, like I'd go out and you know be drinking rounds with the lads, and we all be getting rounds. And my point be gone, and the lads are sitting room five of us in a circle, and the lads are talking about football. And all of a sudden, I start getting irritated. Yeah. I start getting annoyed. I start zoning out what they're talking about. They're talking about football or whatever, and I'm just looking at when's this fucker going to get the next round? Yeah. You know, my point is gone. They've only taken one sup. You know, and you're getting agitated, Action. you're getting thirsty, you're getting that craving is there, that need for more. And then you're going in, you're, you're ordering another point, and then you're you're looking at the watch then, you're going, Jesus, at 12 o'clock this place closes. How am I going to get more drink? I'll, I'll go down to the off-license and buy yeah. a bag of cans. You know, and that, the fear of running out oh, yeah. would consume me. The fear of not having enough. I could have like 20 beers in the fridge, I'd be on my first beer. I'm like, where am I getting the 21st one from? Yeah. You know, the fear of running out or, or when the lights came on in the nightclub, it was time to go home. This, this bravado I've been playing, this, this falseness and, and this protective buzz I was in is now fading away and it's nearly time to go back to the hardship of sobriety. You know, and the fear of that and the discomfort so, of that. So we'd argue that we don't have a drinking problem, we have a sobriety problem. Yeah. We, we, they argue the fact that I can't stay sober. Like, I can drink for four days on the trot. Now, that's a pretty pretty impressive achievement. My granddad always said, I, I have a drinking problem. I can drink no problem. He said, but I can't live. I can't live without booze. Yeah. And that's a funny twist on the scenario. Because everybody's so focused on the booze instead of the internal difficulty that's causing you to reach for it. Yeah. So, like, like there's, there's an hour recap or the bones of an hour about my childhood and as a teenager and a lot of kind of stories that we never really get to share too much, you know, these drinkalogues. And, but trying to paint this picture, which brings us to the next stage of my life, which was the military, the, the Irish Defence Forces. So, like, um, that man said that to me in the pub one day and I'd done a bit of digging and I realised, you know, I have a hell of a tradition here. Like, there's a massive, massive tradition in my family. My grandfather has served in the Congo, in Cyprus, in Lebanon. I had an uncle who was a company sergeant who served in Lebanon, Liberia, Chad, Africa, and all these places. And um, more importantly for me, anyway, I carry him in my heart every day. I've never met the man, but it was my great-grandfather, a First, a first World War I veteran. He was getting slagged one day in the local pub by fellas who were involved in the local IRA. Said, oh, you went off and you fought with the Brits, they said. And he turned around and he says to them, the only problem with you boys is you went to a cockfight. I went to a real fight. Yeah. Do you know what <laughs> so I don't. I, I never met the man. Like, But yeah. I, I understood that there was something greater than me here, this this tradition, you know. So I, I applied. Now, I applied as a get-out-of-jail card because I was in a lot of bother. And I was, like I said earlier, Carl, I was in a hurry nowhere. Yeah. Like I was going nowhere fast. Um, and everybody around me was getting on, but I was like stuck in this quagmire of sickness and uh, madness, you know, and blackout drinking. And um, I applied for the French Foreign Legion, the Irish Army and the British Army all in the one year just to get away, just to get away from trying to outrun my head, I suppose. And... Um, I was if that failed I was going to America. I had an auntie in San Francisco. I was just I was just I was I couldn't get out of the local village I was in. I just couldn't get over. Yeah. There was five pubs in it. I think there's only four now. I think they drank the other one. Like dry. I couldn't get out of it. Like I'd I'd have all these best intentions in the world and I'd start drinking and it was just 
just phew, gone, gone like booze. Wild horses wouldn't get me out of a pub. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was crazy. And I got into the army um, in the winter of 06 and um, it was like I struggled in training. Do you know what I mean? Because you weren't, you couldn't get to, you couldn't get to drink whenever you wanted. Um, there was a lot of, oh, there was a lot of kids who were trying to navigate life and there was, I won't use the word, not, there wasn't bullying, right? But there was a lot of sneering. There's a lot of having to crack. There was a lot of having jokes. And I'm hypersensitive. Like. So you say something to me, I'm going to take it on the wrong way. So I really, really struggled in training. But I wanted to be a soldier more than I wanted to give up. That makes sense. Yeah. And I remember they put me into this, they posted me to this unit in, in Mullingar. And they put me in a room. They gave me a locker. They gave me a uniform. They gave me three square meals a day. And then someone took me to the mess to the canteen and there's tax free drink you could get a pint and a half one and change out your fiver and I said I've arrived I have arrived went to Africa then and they were talking about this dry mission and I was so obsessed with booze right when they were talking about this dry mission that I thought they were talking about the weather like I really <laughs> thought they were talking about the weather and not the fact that there's going to be no drink and we la- I landed in Africa 19 or 20 years of age whatever age I was uh, and I was 12 stone, I was ballooned up from drinking, and um, and there was no booze. And I remember I stood off the drink for about three months that time, and then somebody um, presented a bottle of local brew. And I remember drinking half of it, and it blew the head off me. And we were in the tent drinking, I'll never forget it. And um, see, alcoholics are clever, like, really clever. <laughs> I care more about getting out of trouble than I do about getting into trouble. Yeah. And I have a very, very good ha- um, habit of getting into trouble or being in the vicinity of trouble. Yeah. Do you know, maybe I'm not the one who starts the fire, but I'd be there. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Egging someone on. Or maybe I'm not the one who steals the car, yeah. but I'd be sitting in the back seat when someone does steal a car. Do you know that kind of way? Yeah. <laughs> so I have this amazing ability of being yeah. in the vicinity of yeah, trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> so I... Uh, I remember this tapping came on the tent, right? And I, sh- I just, for some reason, re- I knew that there was a, f- because I, where my bed was in my tent, there was a flap that you could climb out the back of it. So I just fell onto the floor, climbed out the back of the flap and ran over to my room. And I was the only one who, who wasn't done for drinking in the rooms. Everyone else got nailed, weeks wages, bang, drama. So that was my drinking career in Africa over until I got to the capital in Njamina. Now that was a, a flavoury, flavoury night. Um, it was, and I'm probably incriminating myself by saying this stuff, <laughs> which is funny because you know there's military law and there's stuff like that. But I did a lot of drinking in Enjamina. Uh, we landed in the capital, and there was like a French camp, and it was R and R. We were allowed to have a few beers, so I just I went rogue. Like, do you know I mean I went rogue and uh, put myself in a few dangerous positions? And I got home and I was like, you know, getting on the plane, I was like, I'm never drinking again, I'm never drinking again, I'm so lucky, I got out with that, I got out with this, I got out with that, I could have been in trouble here. I was in a fight with a Polish colonel who was the colonel of the camp over rubbish bins or something, stupid, you know, and um, I, I, it was just, it was drama after drama after drama. I remember saying, and then I got as far as Kinney Gad on the way home and I was like, pull in there, I want to get a pint of Guinness. 
And it was as if nothing had happened. Do you know? And then I don't that was in that was in two thousand eight, but in two thousand and six I had been introduced to the concept of a twelve step programme, which will remain nameless due to the traditions of that um fellowship, you know. I, I, I was introduced to this idea of a twelve step programme. And uh I didn't get sober straight away, obviously, but I got sober I'll fast forward the drama, right, because I'm I'm looking at the clock as well and I got sober on November first, two thousand and nine, by accident. Mm. And what I mean by accident was it wasn't my intention. So I had a load of drama. I was in the army about three years at the time, and uh, I, that reputation, that family reputation that I talked about, I was dismantling that. <laughs> um, they took my rifle off me. I got arrested when I came back from Africa one night after doing the day and the beer. And I was on a blackout. I don't know what I'd done, but the four charges I had was uh, assaulting uh, two two members of Angarda Shiakana, initiating a riot, which I was later to find out that any more than 14 people gathered in one place is classed as a riot, even though there was 15 cops and three of us. They still done me with initiating a riot, but it's a legal loophole. <laughs> and trying to disarm a police officer. Now, I don't even know if I'd done them things. I'll, I'll take it that I did. Um, but I got wheeled in and they took my rifle off me and work. Now, a soldier without a rifle is combat ineffective. Do you know what I mean? I might as well have been as good as the typist, uh, that's the civilian typist that's hired in. Then they do a great job. I'm just saying in military terms, I'm not saying anything's wrong with that, but in military terms, I was effectively useless because I couldn't carry a rifle. So I was answering phones and pushing the barrier up and real soul-destroying stuff for someone like me who wanted yeah. to progress on. And, uh, you know, again, I should have stopped, but I wasn't able to stop. And I got brought into court, and I remember the judge, I had the solicitor, and the judge said to me, 12 months in prison. I'm standing there, right? And uh, I had a girl pregnant that, you know, we're just not compatible as two human beings. We get on very well today. We, we speak to each other. The best interest of the child is there and always uh, first. But uh, we're just not compatible as two human beings. Um, and I'm not going to get into that, but that was just this dr- drama and craziness. And, you know, um, she was pregnant and I got 12 months in prison. So I'm losing my job and going to prison. And eventually, anyway, I, I managed to to fumble a bit of sober time together. And I met a man, I actually carry him in my wallet. I'm going to mention him, Billy Colbert. Uh, he's passed on to the to the eternal rest and he said to me sack that man you have in Mullingar ring this solicitor and be prepared to pay money so I rang the solicitor told him the story told him I was you know fumbling around sobriety trying to get a bit of time and trying to you know change and blah blah I'm not going to divulge the bill but it was it was quite an expensive bill anyway fast forward it when it eventually came to um it eventually came to being settled. I ended up getting a 200 euro fine because of a character reference that was given to me by another soldier. Your man stood up in the court. He was a sergeant. Dave Fitzpatrick was his name. And I owe my life to that man. He gave up and gave a character reference about me as an individual. And um, he, the judge says, due to the outstanding character reference given by a man that had served 30 years in the army, I feel it only justified to give this young man a second chance. 200 euro fine, get out of my court. I had a couple of 
months of sobriety or a year or two at that time. I'm not too quite sure. It's all very blurry to me. But from that moment on, I was pole vaulted. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was... Because I remember going to the court that day and I had a, a, a bag packed ready to go to prison. Like, I had totally accepted that... I remember one time I was in a car with a fella called Ray and I was ranting about this, like, you know, because I, I had good people around me when I got sober, like, solid, solid people. And Ray was sitting in the car, like, the two fingers, you know, and he, he had a bit of a West Brit accent and he was very polite and a nice man and helped me an awful lot. I was ranting about the court, you know, the court this, the court that, and blah, 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 and going to prison, blah, I don't want to go to prison, blah. And he just says, he says, maybe God wants you in prison. And he floored me. Now, obviously... Well, I, I began to think about that and it's like, I don't have any acceptance around my situation. When you accept things in the moment, they have the most power. Yeah. Whether that's going to prison, not going to prison, having a child, not having a child, somebody passing away closest to you. If somebody passes away closest to you, it's, it's your duty to become the strongest person in that core circle. Yeah. Because enough people will be falling apart. You can yeah. go in the corner and cry in a week's time when everything's done. But in the instant, there'll be enough people falling apart. Yeah. These are all tools that I've picked up down. That's what Jordan Pearson said. It's all about being the most reliable man at your Fordist funeral. Yes, that's that's the clip. That's the clip that I was referring to. So he, he has some good stuff. I Like, you know, he, he comes across a little bit aggressive and people are like, oh, you're right. But that thing about being the most strongest person in a tragedy Um. Another another person I want to mention as well is a fellow called Kevin Patrick Moore, which was a, he was a huge help to me. He was an he was a worker on nine eleven during during the tragedy, and um, he passed away at COVID there um, a few years ago. And I wear his band on my arm every day. It says KPM and it says Live Out Loud. And Kevin Kevin would always say, you know, I said to him, "What's the biggest lesson you've learned uh, in your life, Kevin?" You know the sobriety and 9-11 all these he says run towards the danger don't run away from it run towards the obstacle is the way run towards the danger he says Um, so like there's all these really cool you know things we've picked up down through the years but there's another thing we need to acknowledge as well Carl is getting sober is one of the most difficult things on the planet Mm. so if there's someone new that's listening to this podcast and they go oh yeah life's great Getting sober is one of the most difficult. You are going from a photograph to its negative. The night I left down my last drink, I was in Mojo's nightclub in Mullingar. There was 200 people in that nightclub. Well, it felt like that anyway. People I grew up with, people I went to school with, people I played sports with. And I remember picking up my last drink. It was a Captain Morgan and Coke. I'll tell you what my first drink is and I can tell you what my last one was. It was Captain Morgan and Coke. And I remember looking up at the clock. It was 20 to 12 and I'd never felt so lonely in my whole life. I was destroyed internally. I was done. I was finished. And like I was lucky enough then that time around that I was cooked enough and ready enough to listen to good, solid people. Like some people get it. They get stays, they come in, they come to 12 step recovery and they stay sober. Some people come in and they don't get it. They go back out and they drink. Why, why did you get it? Like you're coming up to now, what, 13, 14 years sober? 14 years this Halloween weekend, well, if God spares me. Incredible. I got sober at 21. What What was the thing that kept you sober? Why did you get it and other people didn't? I don't know, because like I, I had enough that night. So I had like 
loads of drama that we talked about here today. Like, there was piles of drama. There was loads of reasons why I should have stopped when I did. But on the 1st of November 2009, I had hit rock bottom, but it was the first rock bottom that I surrendered to. See, a lot of people miss the surrender. You can have a thousand rock bottoms, but until you surrender to that rock bottom. So, and I dipped my toe in the water about this, about the alternative, right? Because we, we come into 12-step programs and we hear the word God and higher power. And let me tell you something. There ain't no 21-year-old on the planet that wants to devote their life to prayer meditation. If you find these people, capture them, we'd like to study them. They're like unicorns. <laughs> they don't exist. Young people come into 12-step programs and they, hear, they see the word God and they're gone. Bar the rare exception. So... Let me tell you from my experience, if the word God scares you out of the room, whiskey or Captain Morgan in his wisdom will bring you sailing right back in. Yeah. Every time. So I hit this rock bottom and there was no bells and whistles. Like it was just, I woke up, I had 20 euros in my pocket, I couldn't find my car, I was full of shame and guilt. I was just been on the beer for four days, nobody was talking to me. Um, I had destroyed relationships that I was in and friendships that I, I just, I was done. And I remember going out to collect my car. My parents had confiscated my car on day two of my debacle. And I went out, I located the car. It's like, like the movie, Dude, Where's My Car? <laughs> located my car. And um, I remember my mother, who I said never give up on us, just looked at me and she says, I can't keep doing this. Yeah. This is it now, she said. But there was no screaming. There was no shouting. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, I can't go to... I can't go to any 12-step uh, recovery programs in the town I grew up in. You know, I'll have to go somewhere else. So I drove to Cav and like, I was like, oh, they'll help me here. And there was an American lady. And she talked about that book that I referenced at the start of the talk. And she talked about it in a way I'd never heard anyone t- talk about it. Do you know? And um, that's when I started to fall in with, with, with good people. So the... <sighs> So fast forward to where I'm at now, like I that that was that was like, you know, it was. I th- I look back at the time in my life and I think it was surreal. I had a girl pregnant that I wasn't even talking to. I was facing twelve months in prison, for something I couldn't remember doing. I couldn't carry my rifle. Uh, in a profession that I wanted to be because of the longevity of the tradition attached to it, and. I was actually under house arrest as well. I had to be in by 11 o'clock every night. So like, and I was sleeping on my mother's couch. And you fast forward to today. I'm married, three kids. I have my own house. I'm a sergeant in the Irish Defence Forces. Right? Uh, So I'm trusted to look after people, to display leadership, uh, to display respect, loyalty, moral courage, physical courage. These are all guiding principles we have in the Defence Forces that tie right in with how I live my life anyway as an enthusiastic, uh, recovered alcoholic. And I use the word recovered very, uh, very, very firmly, sorry, because I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I'll never be cured of alcoholism. I know that to be a fact. So how do you go from that? How do you go from being this train wreck with your life upside down to being, having all these things in order. And the deal breaker for me was that I just stopped fighting. I surrendered. Because my alternative to a life of recovery 
is sitting in those bars that I talked about at the start of this talk at 12 o'clock on a Saturday and nobody talking to me and they're pissing my life away and drinking my wages and misery and depression and anger and resentment and worry and fear and financial insecurity and all of these things. I was given an opportunity as well, so I'll summarise how I lived my life today. I was given an opportunity, first of all, to find out what was wrong with me. Mental obsession, physical allergy, phenomenon of craving. You hear these words, insanity. You're insane. Oh, you're insane, you're insane, you're insane. People get scared of that word. Insanity just means wholeness of mind. So I make a decision based on a whole mind. I don't have a whole mind around booze. I ha- I'm strangely insane. Because no matter what happens to me, I'll pick up a drink. So I have sanity today in my life. I have developed a life of prayer meditation. It's far removed from what I thought it was going to be when I came in. It's really just got to do with appreciating the present moment and looking for the guidance in that moment uh, and trying to be the opposite to what I once was and trying to be honest. Um, I got an opportunity to really dig into my past and look at the type of person I was and the things that I've done and the harms that have caused people and my behaviour and uh, the, the resentments and the angers and unjustified stuff and blackening people's names. and You know, when you're in sickness, you will perceive a situation that happened and use that then to give yourself a sense of fucking superiority. Yeah. And that's what I used to do the whole time. You know, if you tell me you don't like me, it's exactly the same feeling in my stomach if I think you don't like me. That's the power of the mind. Yeah. I was I was afforded an opportunity then to go around making amends to people and amending my behaviour, sitting down with them, talking to them face to face. I did this to you. And they say, well, no, actually, you did this, this and this. Well, is there anything I can do to make up for that? Financial amends. Pay back what you borrowed. If you can't find a person put in a charity box, move on with your life. Sweep your side of the street. And today I live very much in... in I'm very enthusiastic, right? The word enthuse means to be possessed of a God. So in work today, I love the organisation. I love it more than anything in my life. It saved my life. It, it Being in recovery and being a soldier support each other. So for me, I understand what it means to be of service. And that's all that the Defence Forces is asking me to do. I don't care about the drama I don't care about what this person's saying, that person's saying. I can only look after my own core bubble, which is the, the people under my command. Norman Swarskoff was the general that led Desert Storm, right? And he said that uh, leadership is a potent combination of strategy and character. But if you should be without one, be without the strategy. So I hope that I never lose my character. And I listen, I'm not everybody's cup of tea, Carl, right? There's, there's people in, in the Defence Forces that say, oh, no, he's a nice fella, or he's a whatever. That's fine. But the main thing is that I, they're not going to name a barracks after me. They're not going to name a square after me. They're not going to put a statue up, in, you know, up beside Michael Collins. But what they can say is, that fella did his job. He showed up, he was dressed, his boots were clean. He, he did his job. He, he played the role that he was assigned within the Defence Forces. And if everybody does that, it betters the organisation. If you want to sit around and complain about things that you have no control over, that's you playing the victim. And I said at the start of the talk, a victim always, 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 always has to be right. And I don't want to be a victim today. 
I want to be a servant of the state, an upstanding member of society with character. I don't want to lose the character. And this is why I drove up here today to sit down with you and have this talk and say, you know, one time my life was in tatters. Today, my life is so full, I'm I nearly, I nearly in tears here talking to you. Do you know what I mean? And I'm driven. I'm driven in the organisation to be better than I am now. I want to move up the ranks. I want to move on. Whatever, whatever that looks like to me, wherever that brings me, I'm willing to say yes, because I was given a second chance. Bear in mind now, I was standing, answering phones and opening gates with carrying no rifle. And now uh, they'll say to me, okay, take them 30 men and bring them overseas. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Bring them overseas and bring them home. And um, you're being charged with that responsibility. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're being charged with the leadership responsibility. And I wouldn't be able to do that if I wasn't sober and wasn't in recovery. That's beautiful, man. I remember hearing a man say, you know, when... You know, you hear people say, oh, if you got it, have you got it yet? You say, no, what does that mean? You know, you hear lads are in the 12-step community saying if you got it or not. And I said, what does it mean to get it? And I remember a man that kind of took me under his wing. He used to say, it's when you said to become useful and reliable. Yeah. You know, that's how you know you got it. You, you know? said it a few weeks ago. Yeah. What's God's will for me? Pay me bills. <laughs> <laughs> Pay me bills, Pay man. Pay your yeah. bills. Yeah. Run your house like a businessman. And these are principles we learn as well. Have a prudent reserve. Yeah. Do not let your bank account drop below a certain amount of money. Yeah. So that if something happens, you can bail your family out. Mm. These are things that were alien to me. Yeah. I used to count my money in beer. <laughs> yeah, the, a five or currency. The point is a five, right? Yeah, twenty quid or four points worth. There was a character in our village who got his dole. Um, he's passed on to his eternal rest as well. A hundred and ninety-eight euro was the doll and he drove in to the town from the village in a tractor with a transport box and he bought 198 cans of Dutch gold <laughs> God bless his soul oh, that's, you know what I mean? that's brilliant but yeah. that's, that's how I used to live my life right okay Guinness why did I drink Guinness at such a young age because it was 3.30 a pint I get 3 pints for tenner yeah. that's how I used to live my life totally yeah. obsessed with booze yeah yeah, it's magic. Nolly, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, man. Always, I've gotten always. so much out of that. You know, you're an absolute gem and you're talking about a statue getting erected. I will commission a statue <laughs> of, a, of a very special worm and dedicate it to you, man, because uh, you're an absolute gem. And you're learning Irish now as well. Yeah, yeah, during the pandemic, everybody else was uh, taking up. When I was sitting, I, I just said, you know what? I'm actually sick of not knowing my own language. And I started the endeavour two years ago. I went on an Irish course last year through the army as well. Uh, and like I can tell you, you know, I like I, I I can tell you all I could ask for permission to take a piss. Now I can have like a basic conversation. I can tell you where I'm living and stuff like that, you know. And mm. that's why uh, the Irish language. My buddy Donald says that the Irish language transcends the visual and the obvious. It it it's. John O'Donoghue calls it the invisible world. I love John O'Donoghue. Yeah, so, so when you look at it, and this ties in rec- recovery as well, right? Without going on too much of a tangent because we're on the clock. But uh, English, right? Birla, as we call it. Um, people say, I'm depressed. I'm sad. I'm angry. In Irish, we don't say that. We say, Ta'ahas Aram which means the sadness 
is on me. Or sorry, Maravi, the happiness is on me. I'm sad or I'm sorry. But what the literal translation is, it's on me. So emotions are on me, meaning that they're on me for a little while and they'll pass. They're not who I am. They don't define me as a person. So that's beautiful. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's one thing in, in... And then you look at the animals. I mean, like you're looking at a wolf, Maktira, son of the land. You're looking at an otter, Madra Ishka, water dog. Like you're not just <laughs> looking at this plain thing, you know. Um, so I love it. Like I'm 400 and something days into a Duolingo streak. Obviously, the low self-esteem in me is like, oh, you should be somewhere else. You should be somewhere else. And then the ego is like, you should be lecturing in Galway right yeah, now. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm sitting yeah. there going, like, I'm dealing with emotions and possessions and the father lends the word and things like that. But that's, look, I mean, the most patriotic thing I can do is learn my own language and yeah. refuse to speak English. Yeah, you know, so that's beautiful. Ni birla agon. Colin is an dome, Tom alcoholic. Naughty, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, brother. Thanks, Carl.